1: Well, it's great to be back. Thank you again uh, to my friend and colleague, Dominic Carter, for holding down the fort yesterday for us. My wife and I had a uh, wedding to attend, but uh, it is great to be back. And instead of the usual uh, two days' worth of stuff to get off my chest, I have uh, three days' worth of stuff to get off my chest. So we may need an extra hour today. I don't know that I'll get it, but I'm going to push for it. We'll see. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because... You know, I realize that entertainers are not the most important people in the world. That being said, I'm about to describe someone that was not only one of the most talked about entertainers and most successful entertainers in the world, but uh, someone that was also a presidential candidate and does command something of a following. Ye... The rapper formerly known as Kanye West—I'm just going to say Kanye West because I, I don't honestly know if it's supposed to be ye or Ye. I've heard different things. The people that point out the oh, there's Yeezus, they say there's uh, you know it should be ye. Other people say no, it's the uh, the the end of Kanye, so it's supposed to be yay. I, I feel much more comfortable, much like I still refer to. uh, X as Twitter, I I feel much more comfortable calling yay or ye Kanye West. Kanye West has been exposed, I think is a fair explanation or a fair description, for being a total anti-Semite. And I think, not that I'm a mental health professional, but I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he may have some uh, deep-seated trauma some deep-seated mental issues that he's trying to deal with or psychological issues. And uh, I, I don't know if it's if it's anger issues or what his deal is. So uh, that's why I'm not going to spend an hour on Kanye West. But he has once again made anti-Semitic remarks in an expletive-laden rant in which he also blasted his former business partners, Donald Trump... And talked about his co-parenting situation with his ex-wife, Kim Kardashian. Now, he screams in this video that was widely circulated on social media and obtained by TMZ. If we could play you a clip or two with bleeping out the words, we're going to try and do that. But if not, you can watch it for yourself if you want. He says, it's 60 million of us in America, 60 million Jews in the world now. First of all, there's not 60 million Jews in the world. I think the number is probably much closer to 16 million, which is a big difference from 60. So Kanye West, who's been diagnosed with, uh, uh, I think it's bipolar disorder or something along those lines, he then rants about how he has visitation with his four children. Jesus Christ. This is his quote. That's why I'm using the word ye here. Jesus Christ. Hitler. Ye. Ye. Third party. Sponsor that. Bring your sponsorships to that. I don't give a effing N-word. I don't give a F about life or death. I got visitation with my friend. Excuse me. I got visitation with my kids. I ain't got no say-so. The rapper made these remarks early Friday morning while he was in Las Vegas. Now, at other points in this footage... Kanye West told people in the crowd to shut up when they tried to speak over him and threatened to kick someone out of the room. Ain't none of y'all N-words with me. I'm by my effing self because ain't none of y'all N-words stand up for me. He said as one woman interrupted him and said, You ain't God, N-word. Shut up, Kanye West says. Be quiet before you get X'd out. Nobody with me. Um, now, Mr. West, who was once a supporter of President Trump, even wore a Make America Great hat to the White House. He also made reference to President Trump's current legal battles. Because you got a mugshot? You with us now? No. What are you going to do for us? And then he goes on at another point to bash um, Zionism and uh, Zionist philosophies. I mean... I said the other day, and I, and I believe this, that anti-Semitism is not the same as anti-Zionism. But a whole bunch of people reached out to me and said, well, okay, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. They had differ- varying views. But they then said, but everyone who's anti-Semitic is an anti-Zionist. And when you look at this bizarre rant From Kanye West, where he's going on and on about the Vatican um, and Putin and the Rothschilds and BlackRock and Vanguard and saying, oh, it's all the Zionists, it's all the Zionists. And uh, he makes the argument that Zionists are against the Jewish people, Zionist enablers, Zionist enablers. It really does lend credence to what some people say that the two are synonymous. So I think it's possible, uh, not possible, it's certainly the case that you can be an anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic, but I think Kanye West proves in this latest rant here that it's very difficult to be, uh, not very difficult, that every anti-Semite is an anti-Zionist. And I really do think you have to put Kanye West in the anti-Semite category. And uh, I just, I I don't know how this guy still has any following at this point. Now, he's at this point dropped out of the presidential race. Who knows if that's going to continue. Here's a little bit of this Kanye West rant from Las Vegas on Friday. Fucking around with our contracts. Ari Emanuel, your brother fucked up my city. Your brother turned Obama hair white. Rami, man, you know, y'all don't do y'all facts. All y'all niggas want to talk about...
0: entertainment.
1: It, it, let me tell you, anybody ever talk to my red, red hat, y'all put me in a, a hospital. Uh, Chinese water torture. Oh, yeah, million mm-hmm. questions. Everybody around me. Everybody around me telling me I can't wear... You can't tell me to color of my hat. Y'all can't tell me mm-hmm. No, none of y'all mother here. With no Instagram, nobody living, nobody at... And I don't want to hear from none of these Jewish s***. Talk about, oh, he's in an episode. Harley passing, they follow me to the hotel. They kill Aaron Carter, and now they acting like they won't kill a yeah. uh, the backstreet boy Aaron sample. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I just, I mean, the guy clearly has some issues here. Clearly. Uh, if you want to comment, you can. 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. I just, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, I really just despise. The, this man's actions and what he does and there's a big part of me that doesn't that despises him kind of even though I try not to despise anybody but then there's a much bigger part of me that just feels bad for this guy I mean this man is clearly sick I mean he is sick and the thing and some people made the similar point with George Santos because a lot of the lies that he was telling were so obvious (laughs) it can't be healthy for someone that's in dire need of psychological help and uh, maybe other forms of professional therapy, as Kanye West clearly is, it can't be healthy for this man to constantly have a platform. And uh, look, maybe maybe I'm at fault. Maybe TMZ's at fault. Maybe everybody in the media that plays a Kanye West clip is at fault for uh, basically exploiting someone's mental illness. Maybe the responsible thing is to ignore this. I um, and maybe that's what I'll do going forward. But I, I w- wanted to play it because Kanye West still does have a massive following as a musician and on social media, and I think people should have an idea of the kind of things that he says without very much prompting. He also is someone that has shown uh, not a, not just a willingness but a an enthusiasm for being involved in the political process. And he is so um, willing to blame the Jews and blame Zionists for every problem that the world has. So uh, maybe, again, maybe it's irresponsible of me to even mention this. I think, though, that uh, if I didn't mention it after being so disgusted by it, people would say, oh, you know, by not uh, by not talking about this, by not playing the audio, you're covering for Kanye West. So uh, I'm just going to mention it once and move on but uh it was uh really disgusting that somebody that has sold literally hundreds of millions of records maybe more but sold hundreds of millions of records and has uh tens of millions of followers on social media perf- says this kind of thing not in the privacy of a bedroom but or whatever like some place where he thinks nobody's listening he's doing this publicly publicly i find this really Reprehensible, honestly. All right, 800-848-9222. It's 800 9222 Let me tell you what's uh, coming up. We have in about uh, 15 minutes, we are going to talk with a gentleman who was an artist, a musician, and a commodities trader. He's got a really interesting book called Life in the Pits, My uh, Time as a Trader on the Rough and Tumble Exchange Floors. We'll talk to him about the uh, financial markets and making that transition from being an artist to being a a titan of industry, come. We'll go through the mail in a little while. If you have email that you want me to read, or if you have a question that you want me to answer, send me an email: frank.morano at redappleaudio networks dot com. That's frank m o r a n o at redappleaudio networks dot com. And then uh, a little bit later in the program, we could talk with George. Haas, the founder of the Sedonia Institute. We had a great response last time he was on the program. and He's got some new information about uh, some uh, stuff that's happening on Mars and elsewhere. We'll get into it. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Al in Yonkers. Hi, Al. Good morning to you, Frank. Morning. You know,
0: Frank, Frank, uh, I don't listen to Kanye West's music much. Uh, You know, I don't know much about him except that he's a famous person. But I do... do, believe that he, he suffers, uh, the, men, the medical field a couple of years ago said that prolonged grief now is a mental illness. So I think when he lost his mother, who was his rock uh, about 10 years ago, uh, his whole life was upended. So I don't excuse his actions, but I think he suffers from prolonged grief and he longs for his mother's presence and that's no longer possible.
1: What do you think, Al, is the responsible thing for the media to do in terms of Kanye West? Is it to ignore? Is it to uh, just report and let people make their own judgments? Is it to condemn? What? What is, if your theory is correct, and uh, look, I think it very well could be, um uh, what what should the press do in terms of covering this? He he is one of the most famous musicians yes. in the world, and a former presidential candidate. Also happens to be the, um, the the co-parent with one of the other most famous people in the world. So I think it's difficult to ignore. What would you do?
0: No, I think you have to report it. But uh, I know the press people. The, they, they 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 realize that it's you know he's probably uh, has anger out, outbursts that are all related to the uh, death of his mother. But, of course, you have to uh, to report on it. But as long as he doesn't get belligerent or become violent, I guess, you know, I, I, you do de- you definitely have to report it because he's a famous person.
1: Mm. Uh, very interesting, Al. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Uh, that's kind of where I come down. I think, you know, I think you do have to—the guy is a public figure. And I think you do have to at least mention it. And by the way, not just a public figure, but someone that up until recently was having dinner with the former and potentially future president of the United States and bringing other people that have been... Um, that have a track record of anti-Semitism to that dinner as well. So uh, I, I I think Al's philosophy is the correct one. If you want to disagree, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222, five open lines if you want to comment. Also on Twitter, yes, I still call it Twitter, at uh, Frank M-O-R-A-N-L. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-L. And uh, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash fan. A lot of other fun things that we're going to get to uh, throughout the course of the program. A lot of stuff that we typically do on Mondays we're going to do today. For instance, uh, commendations is a um, usually a Monday benchmark for us. We're going to do that today, since I wasn't here yesterday, and uh, we're still going to do the Tuesday stuff that we normally do, which includes the mail. And I'm a little backed up in terms of the mail. Let me give you a little bit more of uh, Kanye West going after Jesus Christ, Hitler, etc. Listen to this. Is These China. are Zionists, f-. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus Christ, Hitler, yay. There you go. There you go. Those are the three people that, uh, at least in his mind, deserve to be in the same category. Jesus Christ. And he said, he said yay there, not ye. See, that lends credence to the yay theory, not the ye theory. 800-848-9222, 800-848-92-22. Rocco's in Saratoga. Hi, Rocco.
0: Good evening, Frank. It's quite evident and obvious that he's a schizophrenic and suffering from paranoia. I was a psychology major. That doesn't make me a doctor or anything. But it's quite evident if you speak to a professional, a psychiatrist who is an M.D. or a psychologist who has a doctorate, that they would diagnose him as being paranoid, schizophrenic.
1: Yes. And and, and so given given that diagnosis, which I believe... What um? What do you think the media should do in terms of uh, in terms Get of Kanye West? Yeah. Uh, now, Get w- him help. I, now I've said this with the homeless people on the street that don't want help. That if you're on the street, you don't have a right, right. to sleep on the street. Now Kanye West's not sleeping on the street. He's sleeping in a in a seven you know right. seven figure mansion. Now w- if he doesn't want help, right? Let's say he thinks he he's doesn't. doing fine. Let's right. say what can any of us do? Nothing. It's right. up to him. Eventually he has to break
0: down and realize he'll have an emotional breakdown and realize something's not right. The world's not, you know, that the world's not after me all the time. But yeah. Only he can do it. Yeah. Only he can. That's the unfortunate thing about paranoia and schizophrenia. Yeah. You don't realize you're not rational. You don't realize that you're in another world. You're not living reality. Rocco, that's the problem.
1: Thank you very much. You know, I got an SMS text message here that's not from a listener, and uh, you can text me as well eight one six eight Morano. That's not dissimilar from what uh, Rocco just said, and and that was actually, by the way, I I always give Rocco a hard time for meandering and uh, saying all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, That was actually a very cogent thought on uh, Rocco's part. This is what this listener wrote me. He needs a couple of rich guys like Trump and Musk to abduct him and force him into treatment. People he holds in esteem because he's not anti-Semitic. He's pathetic, wounded, and lashing out. Well, I I think both can be true. I think he is anti-Semitic. I mean, he's not lashing out at the Asians. He's not lashing out at Australians. He's not lashing out at Muslims. He's making the decision to lash out specifically at Jews and Zionists. So, I I mean, I think he is lashing out, but he's lashing out on a group that's been on the receiving end of a, a lot of lashes throughout history. Uh, Feel free to weigh in if you like. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Brad Schaefer, the author of Life in the Pits, is going to give us an intimate glimpse into the raucous exchange floors in the trading pits of Chicago and New York. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Murano. No, 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 no.
1: In the morning, about a quarter till three, I'm sitting here talking with my baby, over cigarettes and coffee, and to tell you that, dog, I've been so sad. I've met you, baby, since I've met you, oh, all the days that I've been around, and all the good-looking girls I've met. The great Otis Redding singing about cigarettes and coffee. Um, Not only is that apropos because yesterday was the birthday of my friend John Tobacco, but uh, it's apropos of our next conversation because so many people that work in the world of high finance... They rely, at least in the heyday of the 80s and 90s especially, on cigarettes and coffee to be perpetually stimulated, oftentimes working insane hours, certainly seeming to do insane things. Very, very pleased to welcome to the show Brad Schaefer. He's a columnist, a commodities trader, a musician, and the author of the book Life in the Pits, My Time as a Trader on the Rough and Tumble Exchange Floors. Brad, welcome to the program. Thanks for staying up late with us.
2: Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, so Brad, since you have some experience in the Chicago commodities exchanging world, you've got to explain to me Exactly how that scheme that uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy at the end of the movie Trading Places pulled off. I've never understood it. I, I still am not sure I understand it.
2: No, you know what, and I'll tell you why. Because most people in the mar- most people who aren't like in the markets, you know, as as a profession, they always have a, a bullish idea, right? So you always everybody thinks when markets go up, you make money. When they go down, you lose money. But in what they were trading were mythical futures on what they called frozen concentrated orange juice that was actually filmed uh, in the gold pit in the commodities exchange in uh, the old four world trade center and uh, I actually knew a couple of those guys who were in that scene and uh, what they did was the uh, everybody they gave the Duke brothers a fake crop report and the crop report basically said that there was a deep freeze and that oranges were going to be very scarce. And so, as right. anybody knows, when things, you know, are scarce, the price goes up in commodities, right? And all, all commodities are, are, um, are just uh, raw materials, right? So everybody thought the Duke brothers knew something because their big broker came in and they started buying, right? So everybody started buying these frozen concentrated orange juice futures, and they just kept going up and up and up and up because, you know, the Dukes knew something, right? They had their broker they're buying. What Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy knew was that the crop report, the real crop report, actually when it came out, showed that there had been no effect from cold, and so there would be plenty of oranges, and so the price would collapse. And so what they did was, as everybody started buying and buying and buying, they became the only sellers. They were the only ones willing to take the other side of these trades. So they sold uh, futures on orange juice at a very, very high price. Because they were the only sellers, right? It was a a seller's market. And then when the crop report came out, the market actually collapsed. And then at the end, what they did was they just closed out their position, buying it back for a small fortune, and they wiped the Duke brothers out in the
1: process. So, well, uh, that's there. that's as thorough and as concise an explanation as I've heard, and uh, now I am convinced. You, you know, your decades of experience aside, now I am convinced that you actually know what you're talking about, Brad. So, uh, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, Brad, tell me about uh, how you got into the uh, trading world. I know, late '80s, you're working as an artist, and your brother was a trader. How did that right. result in a career transition for you?
2: Well, actually, uh, Frank, one of the reasons I wrote the book was uh, to explain to people, and I kind of just used my experience as sort of a, you know, as a, as a whatever, a, a test case, that, um, there, you know, those commodities pits, they were create you know, they were the ones you see people screaming and yelling. There was no, like, recruitment, uh, there was not, no recruitment pipeline, right? It's not like a bunch of guys, like, I went to Illinois, University of Illinois. It's not like a bunch of guys came down there and, said, hey, how would you like to work in the commodities pits? Right. It's you know, it's not like uh I don't know, like a hedge fund might go to MIT and find, mm-hmm. you know, their mm-hmm. their whatever. So what I did was uh, I I got there circuitously. And you know, I I was really an artist when I came out of school, but my brother was a trader on the floor in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And he uh that's the pit, by the way, if anybody's seen Ferris Bueller's Day off, that exchange that they're looking at, oh, that's, sure. the Euro-dollar, that's the Euro dollar that's the Euro dollar futures pit. That's actually where I was and um and so what happened was my brother said uh, you know why don't you come and see where i work i went to the trading floor you know i walked in i was like this is the craziest place i've ever seen you know and and people were people were making and losing millions i'm like you know this is something for me uh you know i wasn't making any money as an artist anyway and and uh so i got my yellow coat which basically meant i was a clerk you know or in the and in the stock exchange they're called runners, and. Uh, and really, you just you start off schlepping coffee for guys, and then you get a job as you know one of the arb clerks, which were the guys who stood around the the outside of the trading pit and sort of were flashing what the markets were to the guys on the phones who were on with their institutional clients all over the world. And then eventually, if you do well enough, somebody takes a liking to you, or somebody says, "Hey, this kid's got what it takes." You get you know, you get uh, somebody like my boss eventually backed me for a seat. So I end up trading Euro dollar options on the floor of the market. I think I was only like twenty two when it happened. And uh that's kind of how a lot of people got there. You know, the way you got your job then was, you know, somebody would say, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy in the live mm-hmm. cattle pit looking for a clerk. And Frank, the shame is that now that those pits are closed, that avenue of it, you know, that avenue into Wall Street for the average Joe, you know, like the, you know, just the old state schoolers like me who just had some chutzpah and some acumen. Those those doors are kind of closed now, which is really too bad because um, it was, I, I call it, it, the book came about from an article I wrote in the Wall Street Journal a while back, and right, I called I the floor, it. The, the, yeah, it was the great equalizer, was the floor, right? Once you got down there, one of the things I loved about it was I stood to my left was a guy who was a high school dropout tennis pro and to my right was a guy who was a harvard law graduate and they were both equally good at trading so yeah. once you got down there your pedigree your your you know whatever your sigma cum laude whatever you had all that mattered was did you know how to buy low and sell high you know and and that's really all that all that mattered like one of the top traders in bonds in the chicago board of trade which was the sister exchange of the merc well had had been like a meatpacker uh before he went down to the floor i one of the guys I stood next to was a former Chicago Cubs pitcher um, one woman was a was an art history major you know uh, the guy that I worked with who was a genius was a uh, Scandinavian who came over and was a pig farmer in Iowa before ending up down on the floor you know so that was uh, one of the things I tried to impart in the book was that you know those days unfortunately i mean i not fortunately it it happens you know it just happened very quickly because of uh, electronic trading as you can imagine that's more efficient than a bunch of guys screaming And uh, that kind of wiped those pits out. Right. And
1: if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Brad Schaefer. He's the author of a book about this bygone era called Life in the Pits. What you just said there, uh, Brad, about digital trading, electronic trading, uh, kind of replacing the role of people screaming in the pit – When did the pit go extinct? When basically that scene that we might see in uh, Trading Places or Ferris Bueller, when did Mm -hmm. that go away permanently? Well,
2: uh, really, um, if I recall, um, it's in the book. I think the first electronic trade was a currency trade on a platform called Globex, which was, I want to say, 1993. And by 2017, I think the last, certainly the last exchange in New York closed the last, uh, you know, floor that is, and um, I think there's still maybe one or two pits left in Chicago where they trade S and P's, but but they're all, you know, they're really just standing around, you know, they're trading on their tablets. It's not like open outcry the way it used to be with us, and so it happened very quickly. So really, from like 1993 to 2017, this business that had been a iconic and staple uh, of the financial futures market and, and options market throughout the had been, you know, there since before the Civil War. Really, I think it started in the 1840s. So it happened very quickly, and I think it took some people by surprise.
1: Yeah. Uh, to help.
2: Yeah. Go you, ahead.
1: You're um, uh, breaking up a little bit, Brad. So if you could just try oh, to make sure you're you're in a, a good area. No, that's okay. Um, if um, if people are of the more elitist mentality, they think, oh, all right, hey, I, I don't want uh, people that were. Artists, or people that went to state school, or people that uh, didn't even finish high school, in charge of uh, such an important part of our economy like commodities, isn't it better off that it's become professionalized? Talk to those people, Brad. Are the fundamentals of the uh, the commodities markets? more secure or more sound now that you don't have basically as you termed it the great equalizer anybody with uh, good instincts and a lot of gumption being able to make these sort of trades well I you know part of it
2: is um, when the when those exchanges closed I think what the markets lost was certainly from from the investment side was, what they, what they call the Israeli, you know, they're about how they call the tenth man, which is basically their job is to think completely outside the box and imagine the complete opposite that everybody else is thinking, so they don't, unfortunately, have what happened to them on ten seven, right? And and it, the, there are there have been several hedge funds that have completely collapsed, you know, taking a lot of good people's money with it, you know, because you know people think of hedge funds as uh, you know, they think of them as just rich people's money, but you know, a lot of them are are funded by school, you know, by pensions that are school pensions and, and stuff like that. And like long-term capital management comes in comes to mind. Those were the most brilliant guys in the market. This is a collapse of a multi-billion-dollar hedge fund in 1998, I believe it was, and uh, they had like two uh, Nobel Prize winners on on their uh, trading floor and everything like that. But what they did was they were so uh, they were so um, in, uh just enamored with their models that they didn't realize that markets are human constructs and there's an old expression that says the market can can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent and I think what happens when you come you lose the human factor and um so i I think there's still risk there and i just I just think the risks have changed in terms of of just you know their personality or they've changed in terms of, of right. you know the landmines are different and
1: and again you know? Brad if if there's a way to get into maybe a slightly better area because you are oh, you, you right. are gl- glitching out a little bit but um the 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 in terms of who gets to make these decisions now about when to buy when to sell oil coffee gold all those sorts of commodities that are pretty important to the whole economy is it all done by a computer algorithm is there any human element in it these days at all. Well, I mean, I
2: trade... Can you hear me now? Is yes, that better? Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah. I trade uh, over-the-counter myself. Uh, I, I've been trading using solely electronic platforms, really, for the past six years. You know, I just trade my own money. And so, and and the decisions that I make are sort of a combination of what I'm seeing on the screen, but also kind of the way my gut is feeling. You know, there's... The Germans have an expression they call finger Spitzengefühl," which means basically intuition at the fingertips. And so... Just over 30 years of doing it, I've just kind of, I've seen, you know, some of these movies before and I don't get fooled by some of the stuff that maybe somebody using a pure algorithm would get fooled by. And, you know, and by fooled by, they just say, if there's a signal, take it. But I say, well, I've seen that signal before and I think it's a false one. So, um, but there are other guys who trade with what is just called black box, which means they just program an algorithm and says, you know, whenever it goes to here, buy it, whenever it goes to there, sell it. And really, you can just hit play and go out and play some golf and just let the machine do it for you. Um, but that also tends to get into trouble because, again, markets markets behave crazy. You know, um, one of the best books on trading ever written was 100 years ago. I'm kind of happy that my book came out now because it's 100 years after what I think is the best book ever written on trading called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And uh, that was written in 1923. And the premise of the book is there's nothing new on Wall Street. And so the, the modus operandi of trading will change. You know, you go from screaming and yelling to being on over the counter, you know, to, to point and click. But markets are still, in the end, Frank, they're human constructs. And so they will behave irrationally. They will behave at times where an algorithm can't make sense of it. And so I think that's why guys like me who are not, uh, you know, I'm not a programmer. I, you know, I use Excel. So, but guys like me, who've just been doing this for a long time, have been able to survive and make the transition.
1: The um, In terms of the kind of characteristics of what makes a good commodities trader, particularly in the pre-electronics age, mm-hmm. what would you say is the kind of person that makes a good commodities trader? Is there is there a profile of someone that could do the job well?
2: It, you have to have discipline. You, you, you there's a couple, you know, there's a couple of hard and fast rules of trading and, you know, it what again, what reminiscences of a stock operator, you know, and you'll see it in my book as well. There, the, what he says is that everybody and everybody who, who speculates is dealing with what they call hope and fear. Right. And the hope is that the money that you've made on this trade won't go away. And the fear is i'm sorry the hope is that i'm sorry scratch that the hope is that the money that you're losing will come back and you know people always say oh you know i bought more because it's down here i hope it'll come back and the fear is that the money you are making you're going to lose and so what that makes people do is it makes them sell their winners too soon and makes them ride out their losses and you have to reverse that you have to hope that your winners are going to keep going and you have to fear that your losers are going to get worse so for instance if you've got two stock positions, one of them is up $10 and one of them is down $10. And let's say you need money. Well, what you know most people are going to do, they're going to sell the profitable stock, right? And they say, oh, I'm going to take my profits and, and use it. No, what you should do is hang on to that because that trade's going your way. You have to get out of the loser. And so you have to cut your losers early. And, um, and you have to stay within your risk parameters. If, if you're trade you know if you have like a uh, $1000 you don't risk a $1000 on a trade right you know uh, you because you could lose everything so you have to know how much to risk and you have to know the moment you get into a trade you always have to tell yourself where am i getting out of this trade and then you react accordingly right so for instance if you have you if you buy something for $100 and you say okay i'm going to risk $10 on this trade then you know you're going to get out at 90 right and you make sure you do you don't say, oh, you know, it's going to come back. No, you get out because every market, every trade is like, I always say, it's like surfing. You you miss that wave, the next one will come. So you have to have the discipline to cut your losses early, and you have to have the discipline to stay in a winning trade. And people get it completely the opposite. And I've seen guys ride losing trades, turn these little tiny losers into huge losing trades. And I've seen guys who, who have a nice trade on who get out of it way too soon because they're afraid of losing their profit and then they watch it go kiting 30 more bucks you know up against them and so um one of my one of my uh one of my bosses who was a great trader once said to me he said you know what brad he said i'm not a great trader but i'm a great puker and what he meant was he knew how to get out of a losing trade right away before it became a uh, a really really bad trade so you have to i just can't emphasize that enough you have to have the discipline to let your winners ride and to cut your losses, and it's early, and it sounds easy, but it's the complete. I, I think people are psychologically hardwired the opposite, right? And and it just takes it just takes years of doing it and doing it until you you know I I, I never a loss never bothers me, right? Like if a lot of trades I do, I, I've got losing trades every day, you know. But the thing is, you know, hopefully the winning trades make a lot more than the losing ones lose, and so you have to position yourself that way.
1: You have a lot of really interesting and really fun stories uh, in this book. And uh, hopefully you'll come back and we'll get into more of them. But one I have to ask you about now, because I think it really is such a a dichotomy with which the with with the uh, you've described the seriousness of the kind of things that you did as a trader and continue to do as a trader. Mm. There's only one edible substance that was allowed on the trading floor. (laughs) and uh, that leads itself to a discussion of what you guys called bombing. What do they allow on the trading floor, and and what's bombing?
2: Well, on the Chicago floor, in New York you could kind of eat a sandwich and stuff like that, but in Chicago they were very strict, and so uh, at least when I traded there you were only allowed to bring gum on the floor. And so a lot of times, you know, people think it's crazy nonstop, but there was, you know it's just like a you know it's just like any type of a sport theres There's a lot of times when there wasn't much going on, and people were bored, and you're standing there next to guys, like imagine standing in a subway for eight hours, and that's kind of what it was like. And so guys would get bored, and so you what you did was you took a trading card, which is just like an index card. just imagine anybody there you know anybody just imagine an index card with writing on it, and you'd take a big wad of gum, you'd stick it on one side, you'd fold the card in half until it made like a little gum taco. And you'd open it up, and so it looked like it was like, like a piece of bread with jelly spread across it. And then you'd toss it on the floor. And remember, it's so crowded, nobody could, you know, it's just like I said, anybody who's been on a crowded subway knows you really can't even see your, your feet, right? And so people would stand there, and, and usually there was one guy they were targeting, and this guy would be standing there next to a big piece of, you know, a big open wad of gum right by his feet. And of course, the moment he stepped on it, Everybody would shout, boom, you know, <laughs> and the guy would look down at his feet and he's got this, all, this card stuck to his like nice new shoes and stuff. <laughs> I mean, we did, we did stuff like that all the time to, uh, to kill time. Yeah, you know, I mean, weird. we were, we were gambling, we were, <laughs> we were. Uh, you don't even want to know the, how how it smelled down there. Uh, but no, I whenever.
1: can imagine. Hey, uh, talking with Brad Schaefer, his new book is uh, "Life in the Pits: My Time as a Trader on the Rough and Tumble Exchange Floors." It's available on Amazon and other places that books are are, are sold. Brad, um, one commodity that I think a lot of people immediately realize has an impact on their day-to-day economy and on their day-to-day lives is oil. I don't know that they necessarily uh, make the connection about how the price of gold, the price of silver, uh, the price of frozen concentrated orange juice impacts their life on a day-to-day basis. It's easy to see with oil. Oil and gas had been skyrocketing up until about 11 months ago. Now, every week, it seems like Gas prices are going lower and lower. There's talk of what OPEC's going to do. There's talk of Correct. what Venezuela's going to do, what Russia's doing, and uh, what emerging economies are doing. Where do you see the uh, price of oil going in the near future, and, and what impact do you think that'll have on gas prices and inflation in general?
2: Well, I mean, if you know, if you notice, oil has been holding roughly around the $70 a barrel range and up. And I, and I personally think that part of the reason for that is that the Biden administration uh, drained the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is usually about, I want to say, like 700 and some million barrels. And they've drained it down to I did the numbers yesterday. It was 49 percent. And they made an announcement through the Department of Energy that they're going to buy oil every time it gets into the low 70s. So as a trader, you say to yourself, well, the federal government has 400 million barrels to buy, right? And so they're going to be doing it on the spot, on the open market. They're going to be buying crude, but obviously that impacts futures prices as well. So I think we kind of have an artificial floor here at the moment, which means if anything, some sort of a a crisis erupts or or suddenly, you know, especially in the summer, if we have people really uh, driving a lot, You'll see the price go back up, and so really, so goes the price of, of uh, crude oil. So goes the price of gasoline. The only real bright spot in the market, I think people will notice that their energy bills have gone up, but not tremendously. And that's because natural gas, which is really what I trade, has been trading at, you know, has, has been trading at historic lows for about a year now. And that's just because there, really, you can't. There's so much natural gas in the United States. There's so much proven reserves. you can't go outside and stick a uh, you know put a stick in the ground without getting some methane coming up so the real saving grace for the U.S. in in that respect has been our natural gas reserves and that's why and people don't realize you know oil and natural gas don't just make fuel I mean every every piece of plastic you have is a petroleum byproduct right natural gas is actually used uh, I I saw a list of all the of all the products it's used everything from like fertilizer to like baby bottles to it's incredible how much uh you know daniel Jurgen wrote a book called the prize about oil and he coined a phrase called hydrocarbon man and that's kind of what we are we mm-hmm. don't realize how much our lives are intertwined I, that's why i call it in the book crude oil the most important commodity in the world i mean because when push comes to shove well you know and and it's getting really cold out do you want to borrow gold or do you want you know Gasoline for your generator. Oh yeah,
1: no. I mean, yeah. I'll, you know what I'm t- I'm picking. Yeah. So uh, just to to sum up what what I think mm-hmm. you're saying about the Biden administration and the strategic petroleum reserve, there are a lot of uh, cynics in our audience and out there in general, and a lot of people say that what you're seeing with the reduction in gas prices right now, this is sort of a, an election year or an election well, season a uh, price declination and it seems it like you say that this is exactly what the Biden administration is doing. Right, of course it is, but the
2: problem is that, you know, they have to, you know, you can once you drain the the SPR to a certain amount, you have to start buying it back. And once you have to start buying it back, everybody knows that the biggest dog on the on the block has got to buy it back, right? So you're not going to you're not going to give it to them, right? You're going to your traders do. You're going to wait and see where the market goes. And it's, it will probably I really truly believe it will go up. And um I think, sure, certainly that was an electioneering, uh, that was an, ele- an electioneering ploy for the midterms. Uh, that's when it really started. And your your viewers, or, I'm sorry, your, your listeners might be interested to know that when Donald Trump was president, he, tr- he suggested buying back and filling the SPR when oil was trading in the low 20s, right? Now, mind you, uh, Biden now is trying to buy it back in the high, in the mid 70s, right? And he said we should really fill it up now, while the you know you know what you know take advantage of these low prices because of COVID and the economic shutdown, right? right? People weren't. And the Democrats blocked it, and they called it. I think Chuck Schumer called it a three billion dollar subsidy to big oil, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. When you consider they were working on a trillion dollar stimulus package, so (laughs) so to deny the president to deny this man, you know, and listen, I'm no. Look, I I I I have like the Ben Shapiro view of Trump, good Trump, bad Trump. You know, when he does good things, I like it. When he does bad things, I don't. But one thing he did get right was he wanted to fill up the SPR. He wanted, in his words, top it off, and they would not let him do that. And they didn't want him to do that because they just wanted to deny him a political victory. Mm-hmm. But it was a victory for the country. Right. You know. I mean. Exactly. You know, exactly. It, it's, the, the SPR is there in case. You know the the you know what hits the fan. It's yep. not there just to turn on and off to try and you know tweak the gas price uh, the gas price here and there just to try and get a couple extra points and you know uh, on the electoral college or Brad, whatever. So.
1: I, I have to uh, I have to end it there. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully we can chat again.
2: Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it.
1: Brad Schaefer, if you want to check out his book, it's called Life in the Pits, and that's pu- published by Post Hill. Press. You can check it out and uh, get it on Amazon or anywhere else. 800 848 9222, 848 9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Murano. I'm a fellow with a heart of gold, with the ways of a gentleman, I've been told, the kind of a feller that wouldn't even harm a flea. But if me and a certain character met, the guy that invented the cigarette, I'd murder that son of a gun in the first degree. Of Course, it ain't cause I don't smoke myself, and I don't reckon they hinder your health. I've smoked them all my life, and I ain't dead yet. But nicotine slaves are all the same at a betting party or a poker game. Everything's gotta stop while they smokes a cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette.
1: Puff, puff, Four minutes until the top of the hour. This, death, this is the other side of midnight. This is again uh, dedicated to, to my friend John Tobacco, who I believe these days is a non smoker. But um, he you know, he has battled with nicotine addiction. And cigarette smoking like many people have over the years. But I think these days he is uh, not smoking. I I certainly haven't seen him smoke in a long time. I uh, got to see John on uh, Saturday briefly. And anyway, a busy weekend for me uh, all around. On Friday, uh, my wife and I were in Atlantic City uh, for some meetings. And we were doing some location scouting for our upcoming uh, party there on December 30th. I think that's going to be big. I finally feel... Like I've got a little, gotten a little bit of a handle on that. That was fun though, and uh, we checked out some new restaurants there, and uh, and met some interesting people. That was a lot of fun. Then on uh, Sunday, <clears throat> I had a wedding to go to, but before the wedding, I ended up going to uh, Joe Piscopo's mom's wake, and in spite of the fact that it wasn't a little, it was a little off the beaten path. Uh, She drew quite a turnout, and uh, not only was Joe there and his siblings, but uh, all five of his children, several of his exes were there, and just an incredible display of people that came out to pay tribute to Edith Piscopo. And it really, I think, spoke well of her because there were a lot of people that knew her, friends and family. But it spoke well of the amount of lives that Joe Piscopo has touched. And uh, he seemed to be in good spirits. We both happened to be wearing the same lapel pin because it was in the state of New Jersey. We both had our lapel pin that was one side the American flag and the other side the New Jersey state flag. Uh, those were lapel pins that were given to us both by Jersey June when I was working with uh, with Joe. So, to the whole Piscopo family, I hope they're doing okay. It's uh, never easy to lose a parent, even if she's 98 years old. Never, e- never easy to lose a grandparent. But uh, it was really wonderful to see that she drew such a, an incredible showing of people to come out and uh, pay tribute to her life. That's a life well lived, if ever there was one. All right. Coming up... Uh, On the other side of the top of the hour, when is something no longer what it was? We'll get into it. The mail and more. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.